Welcome to No Heart Left Behind's Hope in the Heart of Family Life podcast. I'm your host and executive director of No Heart Left Behind, Alicia Stickles. If we're honest, family life can be hard. Family can be our greatest blessing, but also the source of our deepest wounds. At No Heart Left Behind, we have a passion to empower families to thrive with the Word of God and the love of Christ. So each week, we're going to have real conversations about hard issues facing families today. It is our hope that you would be equipped with practical tools based on biblical principles for when life happens and relationships get messy. In other words, how do we flesh out all those Bible verses we know when life isn't looking like we had hoped? If you're in a season of family life that feels hopeless or you have a heart to navigate the challenges of family well, but just don't know how, you're in the right spot. So whether you are driving in your car or checking off one of your honeydews, pop in those earbuds and come find hope in the heart of family life with us. Hey friends, I cannot wait for you to hear this conversation with our new NHLB counselor and my friend, Laura Freeman. Laura is a talented, provisionally licensed marriage and family therapist with a master's degree in marriage and family therapy from North Central University. However, it's not her education that makes my conversation with her so powerful, but rather her own personal story with loss and infertility, a subject that I know leaves so many couples feeling angry, hopeless, and full of despair. This conversation is so rich, we decided to break it into two parts. In part one, Laura shares her story of experiencing the stillbirth of her daughter, Lily James, due to a rare condition called trisomy 13. She shares raw emotions, hard moments, and candid conversations with God that occurred along the journey. This conversation gives anyone walking through a dark season room to wrestle with God and the comfort to know that joy of the Lord can be found even in the darkest of moments. So grab your tissues and let's jump in. Welcome, friends, to another episode of No Heart Left Behind's Hope in the Heart of Family Life. My name is Alicia, and I am your host, and I am here today with a special friend of ours. She is actually one of our counselors at No Heart Left Behind. Her name is Laura Freeman, and we are going to get to know her today, but Laura also has just um, an amazing, hard story um, that she has just so graciously um, come on here today to talk to us about in hopes that it would encourage other people that are walking through the same journey. So thanks for being here, Laura. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So, okay. So before we talk uh, about your story and what we're kind of talking about today is loss, and I'm going to let you jump into that story, but we want to get to know you first. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, who you're married to, what your background is, all that kind of stuff. All right. So I grew up in Dallas, Texas. My family still lives there. My parents are there, aunts, uncles. We are very much Texans. Uh, I have a Texas-shaped stone in my front yard. So I am that annoying Texan. But I went to college in Arkansas at Washita Baptist University. And then I met my husband and moved to Alabama, where he, he is from. So we lived in Montgomery for six years. He works in the credit union world. So that has moved us around a lot as he's been trying to move up in his career. So then we moved from Montgomery after six years to Tennessee. We're there for 18 months. And then now we're here in Mandeville. And we 
absolutely love it here. Yeah, you were saying the other day about the culture here that you just find it so interesting. Yes. And I found another... <laughs> like, you just like to watch people. <laughs> yes. And I heard something else that was funny. I was with uh, a native, New New Orleans, and she, we, she, we were at the pool, and she got really red. She goes, man, I am as red as a crawfish. And I was like, okay, well, the rest of the world says lobster. No one else says crawfish except for y'all. <laughs> I was like, I've never heard anybody say red as a crawfish, and I just loved it. Awesome. And so you have recently come on staff with us at... No Heart Left Behind is one of our counselors. So what, um, talk to us about counseling. Like what made you want to become a counselor? Um, what do you love? What do you hate about counseling? <laughs> oh, loaded question. <laughs> I, I sold insurance for six and a half years before I decided to go into counseling. And I, it was something that I always thought that I would do. It was a natural fit for me. I've always been interested in people and how people what makes people tick, how they function, why they do the things they do, how their family life has affected them. And then also in my house growing up, my parents were in counseling at different seasons of life and they would always talk about it. They, it was a very just natural thing to go to counseling. And when my dad would, you know, bring a punishment or tell us, no, we couldn't, you know, go to the movies or have that extra cookie or something. He's like, well, that's just something you can tell your counselor one day. I mean, he just made it just like this thing that everybody does. It just made it very normal. So I saw the value in counseling from a very young age. And then for myself, like I said, it was just kind of this natural bent. I hated working an office job. And so I thought I, I could actually go back and become become a counselor. I school was always hard for me. It was not something I excelled in. I was I socially I excelled, but academically I didn't. So it was a huge leap of faith when the Lord called me to go back at I mean, what was I 26, 27 to go back and get my masters in counseling. And it it is a job that I absolutely love. Yeah. Awesome. Um so when what is like your What's your jam? What is your favorite thing or type? I don't even know. Not thing. Type of people or subject to work with? That's a good way to say it. That's a good way to say it. I man, and so that has evolved over the years. So I get this question a lot of like, you know, what's the population you like to work with? Recently, I have really gotten into parenting counseling. So if you have like a child under 12, I really enjoy working with the parents to help their lives become easier because kids don't come with manuals, but I feel that I can easily help parents be like, hey, your child's having a temper tantrum. This is how we handle that. I really like working with teenagers. I've been a youth director at a church before, a youth intern, and so I easily connect with teenagers. So I'll work with teens on their own and then, if appropriate, work with their parents. And then grief counseling, individual counseling, life transition counseling. I mean, when we have transitions in our life, it is the number one time that we probably need counseling. Getting married, getting divorced, changing jobs, kids growing up, going off to college, empty nesters. I mean, all those seasons of life are very difficult. And we're not always prepared for the feelings we're going to have, what that's going to bring up, what memories we're going to have from our childhood during that season. And so it's good to have a counselor to help walk through that. So I really enjoy that. Yeah. So, okay. So getting back to fun stuff. So you said you and your husband met in college? After college, we actually met at a wedding. He had driven up to Birmingham 
to come to this wedding, but also because there was a girl in Birmingham who oh. wanted to date. <laughs> and he was like, this is a good excuse to see her. So they went on a date Friday night. He met me at the wedding Saturday and we ended up getting married, not them. So <laughs> That is awesome. <laughs> I always say that too about my husband. I'm like, he is the last man I ever, ever thought I was going to marry. It's so right? weird. So, um, okay. So, you know, what we're jumping into here today, which first of all, let me just say again, how thankful I am to you to come here today and share your heart. So we're going to be talking about your daughter, um, Lily James, and just the, your journey and, and the loss. So, um, why don't you just kind of share your story of you and Jared just trying to start a family and what happened there? You know, when you're growing up and you, you think about one day in the future, you'll have a family and you go to health class and you learn about, you know, the woman's cycle and they're like, oh, well, you just do this one activity and then you get pregnant, you have a baby and you go home and no one prepares you for all the possibilities that can come with that. And you, I remember getting pregnant and the, I was using a midwife and she was like, hey, do you want to do genetic testing? It was like at 10 weeks. And I was like, eh, why would I do genetic testing? Because yeah. bad things don't happen, right? Like you, you, you have a baby, you go home. But so for Jared and I, we got married and we decided we were going to wait around five years to have kids. I, we both wanted kids, but we also, I just, we weren't, just weren't ready. Yeah. We were, you know, this is like, it was like, all right, I don't know if you're ever ready for kids, but it, I wanted to do school and he was trying to push his career forward and we knew we were going to move eventually. And so it, we just kept putting it off. But well, we started trying to have kids. We were living in Tennessee at the time, and everything looked good, but it just wasn't happening. And so you, it took us 15 months to, to get pregnant, and it it really messes with your mind. Um, I guess I can say this on a funny podcast or this podcast, but I, you get to this point, and you're like, am I doing sex wrong? Like, right. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, it's, it's funny you say that because, I mean, we did not, um, my husband and I, we didn't. We, we got to that point because I think with our first kid, it took us a little over a year. Ooh, and yeah. I think growing up somewhat in a Christian household, like you're almost like taught, don't have sex because right. you'll get a baby <laughs> immediately. And so you just have this assumption that like, OK, if I have sex, A plus B is going to equal C right, at right. some point. And we even got to the point where we're like, OK, um, are we doing something wrong here? Yes. And started to think like, okay, this is not what, this is not how we saw this going for sure. Absolutely. No, absolutely not. And other women that have struggled with infertility, I've had the same conversation with them. You, you just you're like, did I miss that day in health class? Like that very <laughs> vital, important piece. Day, piece of the puzzle. This is the baby maker. <laughs> yeah. Like, man, if you're sick that day, you got the flu, you're not going to learn how to make kids. So but we moved here to Mandeville, and we just knew that this is the lo- where the Lord wanted us to be. And we got pregnant a month after we moved in. I mean, a month and two days, I, I got a positive test. And I, it, I mean, it was, sh- it was just one of those shocking, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. We were about to start with a fertility doctor, and I, we had already met with him once, you know, paid him $250 and just a chit chat, but we were pregnant and you don't get that money back by the way, which is fine. And so 
when we were we were thrilled. So the pregnancy was very normal. Um, my midwife even told me that I was boring. She said, but that's what we want to hear. And there was no signs along the way that anything was wrong until we did the anatomy scan. And from the anatomy scan, the midwife saw that there was something on her heart. And she said, you know, it's it's probably nothing. She called it something. She said most of these resolve by the time the baby's born, the body naturally heals it. She said, but you need to go to the fetal medicine doctor to get this test, you know, looked at. And I was like, okay, I mean, a little concerned, but not really. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't, again, bad things don't happen, right? right. Babies come and, and that's what happens. And I'd never heard anything really bad that had happened um, to any of my close friends. And so I didn't really have a context for that. That was at 20 three weeks. So I went to that appointment, honestly, by myself. My husband had meetings that day and he was, had taken over this company when we moved here. And it's not that he wasn't involved. It was just like, I was like, oh, I can do this. Right. And I was like, this isn't going to be a big deal. I'll call you after. And I remember sitting in the waiting room, watching couples walk out and thinking, oh my gosh, they're probably having the worst day of their life. I'm so sorry for them. And me, I'm like, He's just going to say, hey, this isn't a big deal. It'll resolve and I'll go home. And that was not how the day turned out. So um, we, I, I hopped on the table, did the, the ultrasound, and uh, it was very intense. And then they put me in this room to wait for the doctor. It's like an hour later, and I'm just like, something... I was calling my husband. I called my best friend. I was like, something's wrong. Like, I, they just don't make you wait this long. Yeah. Like, something is wrong. And so then the doctor comes and he says, I want to do my own ultrasound. And I was like, oh, crap, this is bad. Because, you know, doctors, essentially at that caliber, right, they don't do the grunt work. They don't do that. And I knew something was wrong. So hop on the table again, quick, 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 scan, scan, scan. I see his face. And I, something I've mentioned to people before that bothered me, and, it, and I can't help it. I mean, it, they couldn't help it, but it was during COVID. And so everybody has their masks on and you can't you can't see their face, but you right. know, you can see their eyes, but you want to see their whole expression. But as Newsom is wrong. So anyway, we get in his office and he says that there was something wrong with her heart. There was something wrong with her kidneys and they're two soft, soft markers for Down syndrome. So, okay. He said, or trisomy 18 and 13, which I was like, I, I don't, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. I'd never heard of, heard of that before. And he, you know, I'm sitting there going, okay, this is a massive moment in my life. My husband is not here. I need to be able to like keep control of what's happening so that I can ask questions that I need to know the answers to, but also my husband's going to ask, other people are going to ask. So I tried my best to like, you know, check in as you just feel like you got punched in the face. Yeah. Like, I mean, you can't process that (laughs) at all. I mean, um, so you kind of asked your question, what is trisomy 13 or 18? So on our genetic, co- on our genetic code, uh, we have 23, okay, scientists, please don't, don't call and write into this, but <laughs> I think we have 23 different strands of DNA. And <laughs> if you have, it's one from each parent. And so if there is a third one, there is an extra chromosome. 
Um, so like trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome, they have an extra chromosome on that 21st strand. But you can live with Down syndrome. Like obviously we, we see that out in the world. But with trisomy 13, 18, 14, and I think there's a 15 that I know about, the most common outside of 21 is 18 and 13. There's an extra chromosome yeah. on that strand of DNA, and it's not compatible with life. Uh, it, it, her, man, I mean, like her organs were all messed up. Um, a lot of, she didn't, but a lot of times trisomy babies will have an extra finger, extra toes, cleft palate. Um, she looked perfect on the outside, which we'll get to, but the inside, I mean, everything on the thing was like ab, abnormal, 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 abnormal. I was like, oh my gosh. And this is a pretty rare condition, Yeah, right? one in 16,000 is the medium that I found. One in 8,000. I've seen one in 20,000, but the most common I've seen is one in 16,000 pregnancies. So when you left the doctor's office with that news, what... Oh my gosh. What did that feel like? What was going through your head? Overwhelm, unreal feeling that, you know, just this, that can't be happening. And I couldn't get my husband on the phone. He he was in the quarter having a business lunch, right? And there's not always great service on there. And so I can't get him on the phone and I can't get into LabCorp because they sent me to go get um, a test called the Maternity 21 genetic test. And I just had to go home and wait till one o'clock. I had like two hours to wait. So I'm calling my best friend and talking, talking to her. And I just sat outside. It, I ended up going to get the test. And later that day is, I, I didn't know, you know, you don't know what to do. I got it. I eventually talked to my husband, but I got in the bathtub for a while. Um, because I had spent a lot, I mean, you know, different, in different pregnancies, you you feel comfort in different areas. And so at this time, I was 23 weeks pregnant. So I was laying in the bathtub and I just start screaming at the Lord. I mean, just in a like, how dare you do this to me? What yeah. are you doing? Please don't do this to me. It is so unfair. And just trying to make sense of what, what my life is about to be. Uh, we had to wait a week to get the blood results and... But just that waiting time of like accepting that this may be the future that we, this path that we're going down. Now, just so that our listeners understand and that I, I want to make sure. So when you left the doctor's office, were, did you have the understanding that, that basically Lily James was not going to survive outside of the the womb not yeah not really I just knew he said if this is what she has the 18 or the 13 that it's not compatible with life and he just kind of left it at that and I didn't really ask questions about what that meant it wasn't until a week later we got the blood result or we got the test results and my midwife are the ones that um that told us and that was the I mean as you can imagine I mean that was just a terrible yeah terrible day and we went back to his office the the next day, the fetal medicine doctor, to talk to him. Okay, like, what are the next? Like, what do we do next? And I just want to say this. I mean, God bless this man because his whole job is to give women bad news. Yeah. Right? Like, I just remember sit, just feeling so sorry for him that day of, why would you do this? <laughs> why yeah. would you choose this? <laughs> Out of all the things you could choose, it's just like, here's more bad news. But. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And so what, what was it like for you? Like, I would imagine you and Jared probably, I guess, coped with this or processed this news very differently. Like, what was that like as a couple to process this? Because if I'm understanding your story correctly, I mean, this wasn't something where, like, you essentially just had to carry Lily James. Yeah, the, the prognosis. Oh, yeah, I'll talk about that. Yeah. And then we'll talk about how we we processed it. So what we were told by the fetal medicine doctors, so most babies that have a genetic abnormality, the body will recognize that within the first trimester and pass it. And that's a fairly common reason for miscarriage, that the body realizes something is wrong and then it it, it goes on. And so the fact that we had made it to the second trimester meant that we were most likely going to make it to the end, which that means either she was going to pass away in my stomach and I would just have to wait until I felt her stop moving for 24 hours before I called the doctor, which felt like a nightmare, Mm. or she would be born alive and she would die uh, within a couple of hours or a day of being being born and I had 16 weeks left in my pregnancy and so this idea that every day I would have to count her kicks and figure it out if she was still alive was a nightmare yeah and he gave us the option of terminating the pregnancy and I'll be honest Jared and I went home and we we really talked about it. We are uh, Christians and we are very pro-life and believe that every life has value and that it is not ours to end. But at the same time, like her life was also going to end. Like there, it was not, she was not going to live. And, and, and even when we, and it's not that God couldn't have healed her, but I mean, we saw the anatomy results. We saw how broken her body was. It was not meant for this world. And also the immense amount of pain that I was in of, you know, Jared could go to work every day and kind of get his mind off of it. But I was still pregnant. I was still growing. She was still kicking. She was a very active baby. And so to then also live in this world going to Target, going to have dinner, going to um, neighborhood get-togethers and crawfish boils. I remember going to one of those and like everybody's staring at me and no one knows what to say. And I, I don't blame any, everybody handled it well, but there is no playbook on how to handle somebody in this situation. I felt like I was this car crash happening in slow motion. Yeah. Everybody is watching me pitying and going, what in the world? And so... We sought counseling from like wise Christian counselors of just like, what, what do we do? Do we terminate? Do we not terminate? And so we ultimately decided not to terminate. We knew we would come to that decision, but we did need to explore that. And I'm not ashamed to say that we even thought that through because even the Christian pastors and, and counsel that we sought, they were all like, oh, this is a, this is, this is a hard area. Yeah. Very gray. It is. It felt very gray. And ultimately what did change my mind because I, my brother, he was an ethics major, philosophy ethics major, and he's a strong Christian. I need, it was like, okay, ethically, where are we at on this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, because you're so clouded, you know, by the um, 
just the emotion and the grief of it all. And yeah, I mean, I, I cannot imagine what that was like. Well, and you go, women will understand this. You go from every day praying that your baby lives, that they're fine, to you move to praying that your baby dies. And I can't, so that this can be over. And I cannot tell you what that does to your psyche of just like, please, Lord, make this end. But that means she's going to die. And that, that sounds impossible. And then we, I asked the doctor, I said, okay, so let's say she's born alive. What happens? He said, well, you know, if you don't want to do any life-saving measures, which we had chosen not to, um, because it would have just prolonged her life a couple of hours or days, then she will probably have a heart issue and die, or she will start gasping for air and die and I said, okay, but what if she lives a day? Um, I said, do we feed her? Like, yeah. you know, she's a, a human. He said, well, that would be a life-saving measure. So I was like, so she just starves to death? Like, yeah. it uh. was, I was like, I can't. It was an impossible decision. But ultimately, I looked up what an abortion does to a woman's body. And... The increased risk of cancer, depression, anxieties, chances that it may hurt your body, your reproductive system to be able to have babies in the future, the scarring, all of that. Not just my faith is what stopped us from doing that, but we knew we wanted to have more kids one day. And I didn't want to have an increased risk of any of those things. things. So, you know, not to go off on this tangent, but that's something they do not tell women when they go in for abortions that... It is not a benign thing. It very much affects their body and will always stay with them. And yeah. that's just not fair to women. Yeah, absolutely. So we chose not to from there. And so when the time came, uh, yeah. you know, when Lily passed away, mm-hmm. when did that happen exactly? And what was that experience like? So the Lord was good. And it was only three weeks later that she passed Different women have different views on what they want. You know, some really want their, I read tons of blogs, right, for weeks, Jared, and I read blogs on other women and husbands' experiences, and some of them really just want their babies to be born alive so they can hear them cry one time. That sounded too much for me. Some, you know, wanted it to be over quickly, and and so for us, it was three weeks. At 27 weeks, um, I, I was... I had already moved to from, away from my midwife to an OB. I was about to do hospital tours of the two hospitals up here in the Mandeville area to who does palliative care to see if, if she was born alive, what does that look like, who takes care of us. And, and I will say that our hospital systems do a great job, especially St. Tammany, of, of preparing women as best they can for that. But that afternoon, it was on a Thursday, and I... I hadn't felt her move much that day. And like I said, she was a very active baby. And so, you know, you do what you're told to do or you, you've heard of, you know, I started having you know chocolate and like some sugar or whatever. And I remember seeing her kick on my left side. I could, you know, visually see it. And I was like, okay, she's still here. And that felt good, right? Like it's a bittersweet, but she's yeah. still here. And we were supposed to go out of town that weekend um, to celebrate our niece and nephew's birthday. And so that night I'm packing, I'm running around the house, and I just remember thinking, like, man, she's not moved a lot. But I was like, okay, that's fine. I got in bed that night, and I 
I was just like, she's just, I told my husband, I was like, she's just not moving a lot. And he said, okay, we'll just go to sleep and we'll wake up in the morning and reevaluate. And in the middle of the night, I woke up uh, and I realized that I had not felt her move at all. And you would think that that would have kept me awake, but as clearly as I'm talking to you now, I, I heard the Lord say that I need to go back to sleep because it's going to be a really big day tomorrow. Mm. And I was able to go back to sleep. And it makes me think of Psalms 23, where it talks about he leads us by still waters and, um, and he prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. And so in the middle of of something very tragic happening, the Lord gave me rest. Yeah. I wake up the next morning. She's not moved. I start drinking the coffee, right? Like we're going to, all the caffeine, see if I can get her, all, all the things to get her to move. I'm moving. And my husband, he, he, God bless him. I feel so bad. He had, somebody had flown into town to interview from another state. And I said, I need to go to the doctor's office to see. And he's like, okay, let me go handle this thing in New Orleans. Like this guy has flown in from another state to interview for an executive level job with me. And so he said, do you want, you want to wait till this afternoon when I I said, I just got to go do this real quick. And I was like, nope, I'm going to go by myself. And he was like, okay. And I know he felt (laughs) torn and, but I I was, I mean, it is what it is. And I drove to the doctor's office and I called one of my very good friends. And I said, I need you to meet me there. I think this is it. And she said, okay. So she drove in from the South shore to meet me at the doctor's office. Nurse did an ultrasound, no heartbeat. We go to do, um, or, well, I guess it was the Doppler or whatever it is. But the, and then she, then we did go to ultrasound with the doctor. And I remember sitting in there and I called my best friend and I was just like, do you think this is it? And she said, yeah. And I was like, okay. So I start texting my, my parents to come. And so they did the ultrasound and they found that she had passed. And, um, there, I remember like laying on the bed, right? Like your back. And like the doctor's on one side, the nurse is on the other, and they're staring at me. I'm crying, and they're like, are you okay? And I just said, I just feel so relieved. Is that wrong? And they're like, no, right? Mm. It was just this culmination of the last three weeks of living in just what felt like hell, that it was over. And I was like, okay. I just felt like I could take a deep breath. And as much as I was grieving, but I had had three weeks to grieve and prepare for this. I just, I needed it to end so that I could move on to not the next thing, but just move on with the grief, the next, the next process of grief. So my friend came, picked me up from the doctor's office. We went and had breakfast because I hadn't eaten and I knew I had to go to the hospital that afternoon to be induced. And I wasn't, I was going to have an out of hospital birth, right? I'd, I hadn't prepared for what do I need for hospital? So we went to Target and bought stuff and, you know, like, and I had to call my mother-in-law because to come in, like my in-laws to come, my parents were coming and it was a lot of coordinate because since we're from out of state, our parents, you know, they want to be here, of course. And so we went to the hospital that night and they induced me and they have a bereavement nurse that talks you through everything and she is a godsend but you have to answer questions that you don't like okay when she's born do you want her to go straight to your stomach or do you want me to take her and 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 clean her up first so you can hold her oh my gosh okay and then what how long do you want her to stay in the room with you and you know she will have passed and she has passed so do you want a cooling 
y'all, there's literally a cooling bed that they can put her in to preserve the body for you to hold, you know, for your stay in there. And I was like, no, I don't, you know, and I know people have done that and God bless them. And I was like, I couldn't do that. But she said, okay, then how long do you think you want to hold her? <laughs> how do you know that? How do you even answer that? Yeah. Like at some point you'd be like, all right, I'm done. Like, I don't want to. So I told my husband, he was going to have to, to tell me when it was time. And, um, and so then, you know, and what do you do with the body? And I mean, it's just all these, like, you don't even think about it. Like you don't even, how do you even have answers? Like you're making me cry. I am like (laughs) undone. I cannot imagine. It was a surreal experience, but the hospital was great because they let, they put us in like this back corner room that was massive and they, they prepared the room. This is, I mean, y'all have to go with my dark humor here, but we called it the dead baby room because they covered up all the happy posters of like oh, breastfeeding and stuff with all these like sad Dr. Seuss sayings, like a person's a person, no matter how small. I mean, but they had just like tacked it up. It was just like, they're doing their best, but it just felt right. <laughs> like, just like, oh my gosh, this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. And everybody was so kind to us, but they let our, it was still during COVID, right? COVID restrictions, but they let our parents come up, both sets of parents and my husband without question. And bring dinner and stay in there as long as possible. And my mother and my mother-in-law were in the room for the birth. And I think I got huge brownie points from my mother-in-law from that. (laughs) um, What did that experience look like in terms, like, did you hold Lily James? Like, could you talk a little bit about that and what that was like for you and Jared? Yeah, I, as, as hard as the whole situation was it still was an exciting birth story I still enjoy telling it and I won't go into all the detail here but it it you know sometimes when I retell it to people because you know women talk about their birth stories and I'm like well I have one too and it's actually really funny like she was starting to be born in the sack and then actually the the sack I mean it exploded and water went everywhere I mean it was just this like almost comical thing if it wasn't so terrible but I think the Lord really gave us those moments to just kind of break the tension. Yeah. Um, real quick funny story. I, I had t- always talked about a home birth or whatever. And my husband was like, well, I don't want placenta juice all over. It's going to, and I was like, Jared, it doesn't spread. I mean, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, then when my, 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 the, the water exploded, actually got on, a little on his arm and he was like, see, I told you. <laughs> and so, you know, we have those moments that he and I can laugh, but so I, like I said, my husband was in there, my mother-in-law and my mom were there. And so she came out and they, they put her on my stomach. And that was really difficult. Uh, one of the blessings in this is though, I'd really been mourning the fact that I would never get to see what she looked like or who she would have looked like. And she was a little over two pounds And so I could see that she had a little bit of blonde hair like I did as a baby. And she had Jared's crooked cashew toe, that second toe, (laughs) and that his mom also has. And my gosh, she would have been beautiful. She had like this long torso and long legs. I mean, I just, I was like, man, she would have been just a a gorgeous adult. And um, so that was extremely special. And so they wrapped her up and we got to hold her. And my dad got a holder and my mom got a holder and, and my, my in-laws and took and my husband. And even though she wasn't there, 
it still to this day is one of the best moments of my life. Mm. Like it was such a room filled with love and joy in the middle of heartbreak. And I remember just watching them all hold my daughter and, and just praising the Lord. I'm like, look, look what you gave us. You gave us this moment. And while it was sad, I can't explain that it was still one of the best moments of my life. Mm. Like, so then everybody kind of had their moment and, and I held her for a long time because I just wanted to remember like the weight of her, like what she felt like in my arms. And then my husband came over and he was like, okay, are you ready? And I was like, yeah. And so then they wheeled her away and, and then I had to stay in the hospital for two days and then my milk came in and right. So that even when you go home, like that's something that people don't think about is that when you make it to a certain point in your pregnancy, like you still have to deal with postpartum stuff. Like, you know, the really sexy panties that they give you in the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Super sexy. My husband and I put those on. He was like, oh my gosh, what are those? I was like, I know I'm looking good. And then I still had, you know, my milk came in a day later and I, I had to, I had to deal with that. And I have so many people, you know, my, everybody's at my, well, that's a long story. Everybody's at my house. Brother's at my house. Yeah. His wife, everybody. And I got these, everybody's talking about my boobs. And so, but, you know, all those things that like, and then we had to go to the funeral home and like, Louisiana has certain laws you have to follow. It, it, there's so much into this, but it was a, it was beautiful hmm. in its own bittersweet way. And I mean, what an incredible, I think that just really... You know, because we talk about like God's love and grace being enough despite circumstances. So, I mean, just the fact, what a, what a beautiful testament that is to that, that even in the midst of like what I feel like would be the deepest sorrow that God was in it and there was still, there was still joy. Okay, so as you dry your eyes, I want to thank you for listening to part one of Laura's story. Next week, we will continue our conversation with Laura as she talks about life in the valley, nod to Psalm 23, as she continues her journey with infertility. We hope you will tune in as Laura shares truths about grieving well, allowing life's questions to remain unanswered, and how she has had to trust in the character of God through this process. It is our prayer that this conversation would reach the couples that could be encouraged by its message. So if you feel led, please follow or share the podcast or even leave a review because it helps the visibility of the episode. Hope you join us again next week. Thank you so much for joining us on No Heart Left Behind's Hope in the Heart of Family Life podcast. We hope you felt seen, encouraged, and just a little more equipped to love your family well. If you want to learn more about No Heart Left Behind, be sure to check out our website, www.noheartleftbehind.com, or visit the link in the show notes. If you love the podcast, we would love it if you would follow us on your favorite podcast player. And if you love this episode, please share it with a friend. Your encouragement is not just for our egos. It really helps others find the show and encourages them to check it out. Mother Teresa said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. So until we see you again next week, go home and be a world changer.